0: Good afternoon, this is Dr. Daniel Jaguar, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 7th of November, 2023, and this is going to be lecture number 13, chapter 13, and biomedical portrait number 5. And you know I like to end on 13 or thereabouts, so you know we're getting very close, even though I've been becoming quite tangential lately. So, The NADPH oxidase we've been talking about assembles at the plasma membrane as well as at the phagosomal membrane. And it will produce reactive oxygen directly into the extracellular medium, thereby enhancing the oxidative burst. Now, that ROS production actually associates with migration of other neutrophils. And that migration of other neutrophils then will... will Either activate them, and that activation will lead to an enhancement of the oxidative burst because those neutrophils will eventually generate the phagosome. And remember, the whole system will then explode. And when that explodes, it makes a a neutrophil extracellular trap. the The um, neutrophil's function has now reached its last stages. Okay. So I wanted to add that, make sure that you understood that component of it, that that, H, that um, not so much uh, superoxide, but hydrogen peroxide can play a role in signaling, particularly extracellularly. And this was uh, first described many years ago in the uh, immunology literature. So I just want to make sure I said that. Now, a long-lasting NDPH oxase activation at the plasma membrane, can also be um, produced. And this occurs because of another set of proteins called beta-2 integrins. So beta-2 integrin-dependent adherent neutrophils can be stimulated um, with n formylmethionine methionine, phenylalanine or tumor necrosis factor, or without. Now, I want to remind you about nf MLP. Uh, because you know, I, when I go over things like this, I forget that you haven't been taking you know, a biochemistry series with me, and I don't know what your backgrounds all are. But you have to understand where that comes from, why that's a bacterial tripeptide, formulated tripeptide, that has essentially its own G-protein couple receptor to induce the inflammatory response. <clears throat> Well, remember that ribosomes initiate translation, and this uh, this occurs during transcription in prokaryotes, particularly in bacteria, right? So transcription and translation are coupled processes <laughs> in bacteria. The translation initiation then becomes the rate-limiting and highly regulated phase of the four full phases of protein synthesis in bacteria. Okay. You know, for, for ultimate translation of the polypeptide. So the rate at which these ribosomes assemble on the transcript is very, very rapid on the order of one to two seconds and has been measured. Now remember, protein synthesis is much long, takes much longer in eukaryotes a 50,000 Dalton protein, starting from the initial phase of transcription, processing of the messenger RNA, polyadenylating it, five prime capping it, sending it into the cytoplasm, having the ribosome organize itself around, so it's a polyribosome ribosome system, uh, to start translating that protein and then getting nation protein product not referring to anything post-translational occurring, that could take five minutes. So it's not that quick of a process for a protein to be synthesized if transcription uh, is separated from translation. Now, bacteria is not the same thing. So (coughs) ribosomes will translate the message um, at a rate of probably 12 amino acids per second in bacterial protein synthesis. So the ribosome, uh, think about the fact that you have an aminoacylated and formulated initial transfer RNA. In fact, that's a formal methionine transfer RNA, okay, of, where the amino acid, three prime end of that transfer RNA is formulated methionine, okay? And you need multiple uh, initiation factors for all this to go down, not just that formal met trnaf met you also need uh, initiation factors one one through three okay so now you understand what this formula methionyl lucille phenylalanine uh comes from in terms of uh, the biological network so I, I told you you could purchase that um uh, peptide to induce neutrophils but the reason that neutrophils respond to it is because that's essentially a amino-terminal protein fragment from bacterial proteins, almost all bacterial proteins. If they don't retain the uh, n-formal met, they start with the n-formal met, okay? Now back to integrins. So integrins in their active conformation stimulated different intracellular pathways when studied looking at the PI34 bisphosphate and the PIP3 monophosphate by the, the class 1 phosphatidylinositol 3 kinases. okay? So the class 1 PI3 kinase works as a heterodimer. It has something called the P110. And that's the catalytic subunit, and that's regulatory subunits as well, of course. Now there are two subclasses. There's one A and one B. So subclass one A has three types of catalytic subunits: P110 alpha, beta, and delta. And they share regulatory subunits, which are mixed into the lot. Those subunits basically Protein domains. So there's P85, p eighty five, pretty big domains. P eighty five, p fifty, and p fifty five, respectively. So when you when you uh, observe a pharmacological inhibition of class one PI three kinase, and this is done to alter the a- adherence of neutrophils, you, you will observe that p one ten beta halts an integrin mediated ROS production. Okay, so integrins are, are associated with this process. So, expression of a tagged, now we're back to the FOX uh, portions of the NDPA, NDPH oxys. expression of tagged P47 FOX, P40 FOX, and P67 FOX in neutrophil like cells, this is called PLB985s, shows that there is an internal, what they call a reflexion fluorescence video microscopy. And after class 1 PI3 kinase inhibition, the release of all those subunits occurs in the plasma membrane, okay? So they're able to measure this using microscopy by using fluorescent probes. And and I told you, there's multiple ways to get at these protein-protein-protein lipid interactions. And this is a really solid technique to be able to follow it. The problem with the technique, though, is that you're measuring fluorescence. And so fluorescence then will be quantified. And we need to know that that fluorescence quantification is really directly associated with the interaction of those phosphatylidinositols and not just related to the fact that the subunits are interacting with products of the kinase reaction because what I was mentioning to you last time is important to also amplify up a little bit. I told you about using uh P32 to phosphorylate uh, membrane phospholipids. And also we were getting into talking about that's another way of looking at phospho transfer from lipids to polypeptides and back again, that's what happens. <clears throat> so what's the problem with that kind of experimentation? Same thing with the fluorescence video microscopy. Well, the source of the phosphate is still not directly determined. (laughs) It's certainly not coming from P32 labeled ATP, right? Um, So that means that the phosphate has to have been registered onto a lipid or, or a polypeptide domain for it to move around within the membrane such that you end up with final product like PIP three. And measuring things by green fluorescence protein like we were talking about last time, binding to that domain and, and following that GFP uh, or using this fluorescence video microscopy, the same um, caveat has to be laid in place. We're measuring an artificial system. And the artificial system is only there so that so that we can extend our ability to study the phenomena remember this is all phenomena means we have to use our senses and all the instrumentation in the biochemical laboratory is an extension of your senses right and so that seems to be able to be a very linear response we you know it's how we measure things but keep in mind that it's still not measuring the actual in vivo response you're using labeling and you're using artificial substrates and measuring artificial products to be able to get to this um, molecular level of understanding of the integration of alteration of membrane lipid with polypeptide. And in this particular case, our whole discussion of the uh, oxidative burst neutrophils. <clears throat> now, this paper that we're looking at, when you look at the mechanism, it seems to involve that PX domain of P47 FOX. And the argument is that it binds to PI3,4 bisphosphate. Okay. And now the issue there is if it binds to that particular substrate, you're going to see an increase in reactive oxygen production at the phagosome. But it's going to drastically affect also what's going on in the plasma membrane because. This is often induced when you're looking at it, especially at the plasma membrane, by using formyl MLP activation. So again, these are a lot of artificial things that you're adding together to look at the co-stimulation between the plasma membrane reactive oxygen production and the phagosomal superoxide production. Okay, so you get what I'm saying here. Um, And that means you have to know where that PI3 phosphate is coming from and how the timing of an NDPH oxidation occurs now when you're looking at the phagosome, okay? So there's a separation of of, uh, activities there. Now, let's back off a little bit. and Let's talk about the fact that we got into this whole discussion because I've already told you the lead, okay? I didn't bury the lead. I brought the lead right out front at the beginning of the lecture. This is how I normally do when I'm in lecture hall. I tell you what I'm going to do, and then I then I go through it. And then the process, I remind you occasionally. Remember, we're, we're looking at literature that suggests that a stimulation of phosphofructokinase 1, the glycolytic enzyme, <coughs> studying the activity of neutrophil-mediated hyperinflammatory responses, which can occur in multiple cellular beds, can be attenuated, that means you're attenuating the NOx2, because activating the PFK1 will drive the glucose through glycolysis, rather than sharing the glucose at the level of glucose 6-phosphate running into the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. And remember, the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt starts off with the dehydrogenase, phosphate dehydrogenase, followed by a lactinase, and bi- followed by 6 lactone dehydrogenase. And those two dehydrogenases, they are oxidizing the glucose, and decarboxylation drives those reactions overall through that lactinization. So drives, the oxidation of glucose, that's what's happening there, and therefore the reduction of NADP, right? And that's how you get the NADPH necessary as a substrate for the NOx2, along with molecular oxygen, which is a plentiful substrate in, uh, in the system, right? So it's NADPH, it becomes rate limiting, you understand. So there have been researchers that say What about glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, which obviously is the first enzyme in the OPP, and it's the one that generates the initial phase of an NDPH production. So could an alternative approach to control oxidative burst to inhibit that enzyme? And so guess what? There are inhibitors to it. Six amino nicotinamide—that's six AN—will inhibit that enzyme. Okay, and does that reduce reactive oxygen? Yes. This is all in the animal model, and also in cell culture, obviously. And in the animal model, you can actually get give that six amino nicotinamide as an intranasal delivery, as pharmaceutical intranasal delivery, an IN and you'll get limited oxidative damage. You'll get ameliorated airway inflammation in acute lung injury, that's ALI in mice, induced by LPS, okay? So yes, if you inhibit leucosophosphate dehydrogenase, you are going to get the same um, repair of the enhanced oxidative burst as you might by trying to inhibit, for example, or to promote Another system, and we're talking at the beginning about promoting PFK one. Remember? Okay. Now the problem with all of this is if you inhibit NADPH production, even if it's trying to, if you're trying to link it directly to leukocytes, what's to prevent it from happening to other circulating immune cells like lymphocytes? Okay. So if that happens, if you if you inhibit NADPH production in T cells and B cells. You're going to inhibit the amount of inflammatory cytokine release, particularly from T cells, and when that happens, no acquired immune response can carry out the rest of the process. You know, forgetting about the fact that the neutrophils have already done their work, right? So it's probably not such a good idea to try to inhibit glucose phosphate dehydrogenase. Right now, you know that glucose is going to be metabolized not just with that OPP pathway, right? You also know that glucose is going to be metabolized down to the three carbon level in glycolysis, making dihydroxy, after the aldolase reaction of uh, utilizing fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, the product of PFK1, you're going to make and you're going to make glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. Now, you know that those two three carbon intermediates, phosphorylated three carbon intermediates in the glycolytic pathway, because of the the isomerase between DAP and GAP, GAP can move back into, and essentially, anaplerotically fill up the OPP in those transkelase reactions. That means you are delivering carbon back into the system anyway. So does that mean you're going to get the oxidation because of the increase in NDPH? No, it doesn't mean that. It means you're gonna be able to utilize that carbon more effectively but it can draw the carbon into those initial transaldolase reactions. And if that occurs, it could alter the ratio of glucose 6-phosphate for glycolysis versus the OPP. You see, that depends on the KMs for those two enzymes. uh, the isomerase of so glucose phosphate isomerase making fructose six phosphate from glucose six phosphate versus that dehydrogenase. I'm telling you, once that dehydrogenase is kicked in, <laughs> it's a uh, the it is thermodynamically favorable because of that decarboxylation. You see, making the ribose five phosphate. So that's all very important to consider here now. Again, going back to this whole chemical library where this all started from, there was this compound that they were looking at um, that was work that functions. It's a small molecule. I, I'll, I'll give you the whole explanation of it in a minute, but it works at the level of micromolar to submicromolar level, and it effectively inhibits netosis in human cells. Okay, so the mechanism on how it inhibited mitosis is how we got to this whole biomedical portrait right because the question was is it inhibiting directly nox2 now what they showed is that this compound this ldc 7559 is it's more effective analog called na11 actually was shown to selectively activate pfk isoform l or you know pfk1 right and that's how this whole thing was figured out okay so that's how you get a dampening of uh, glucose flux into the opp and therefore a decrease in in nadph so they were looking at analogs of the original um compound the chemical library and the one of the analogs much more effective so this is how they figured out this whole thing about the pfk and I told you that there are multiple kinds of phosphofructokinase. So they, they felt good in this paper saying, well, this only inhibits the liver form. Well, the liver form is a very significant form of the enzyme. Okay. I don't mean inhibit, activate. It, it activates it. So because it activates the liver form, they're thinking, well, it doesn't activate the muscle type, for example, or the platelet type. But Remember that PFKL is the dominant PFK, not just in neutrophils, but also in the liver and various other organ systems. So activating PFK when de novo NADPH or phosphate is necessary, for example, for cell division, could corrupt cell division. Because remember, NADPH isn't just used for uh, the production of superoxide. No, NADPH is the Biological reductant, which controls the glutathione mediated removal of reactive oxygen, which I told you at the beginning of the lectures as well. And what else do you know about NADPH? Reductive biosynthesis, such as nucleic acid biosynthesis, fatty acid, cholesterologenesis, all of those pathways, those anabolic pathways require NADPH as the reductant to generate those multiple pathways. So fatty acid synthesis requires NADPH. Cholesterologenesis, all prenolipid, requires NADPH. All nucleotide biosynthesis requires NADPH, reductive biosynthesis, right? So when you're activating PFK1, you are drawing down not only the production of NADPH, which itself is a drastic thing for the cell to deal with because it can't get ready for cell cycle because you need new cholesterol for membranes you need new fatty acids to make all the glycerolipids sphingolipids for new membrane but also you need new membrane turnover before the cell ever ever gets close to the s phase or ever gets close to any kind of mediating up to the mitotic level so In activating the PFK1, you are basically drawing down the level of cellular NADPH and ribose 5-phosphate, both of which could be really detrimental to the cell. Now, if you're thinking about a cancer cell, you know that that might not work either because you know all about the Warburg effect, right, and aerobic glycolysis. (laughs) So... Aerobic glycolysis, tumor cells divide because glucose uptake keeps on going. Fatty acid utilization is too slow. The tumor microenvironment might become oxygen limiting. Remember the whole, um, uh, the, the um, HIF1 production in the microtumor environment, right? And that can occur because you get hypoxia, you get local hypoxia, even though glucose is being run through the glycolytic pathway and when there's abundant oxygen, oxygen starts to deplete. And that's because of the massive amount of cell proliferation in developing tumors, right? Getting farther and farther away from the vascular bed. That means farther and farther away from molecular oxygen. Okay? So the whole process cannot be um, triggered in such a way that you're modifying these major. Intermediary metabolic pathway, unless there's a way to use an inhibitor or an act, in this case, an activator for PFK1, that can be brought in, delivered, do the job, and immediately removed as if it was a normal cellular phenomena. And that's more difficult to do because you're dealing with low molecular mass, so called small molecule pharmaceuticals. So the small molecules often don't have any degradative pathway like a peptide would, right, just by limit proteolysis. Or lipids also can turn over rapidly depending on whether or not they have acyl carbon or prenal carbon, right, through those various catabolic pathways or oxidation pathways, fatty acid oxidation. Here you're talking about using these exotic species of these small molecules that may not have a good mediated removal process. There probably is gonna be some microsomal P450 monooxygenase that'll take down these compounds because uh, th- those enzymatic machinery have seen everything that an organic uh, chemist can generate uh, or an inorganic chemist can generate. But the problem is still, the residence time for these activators or inhibitors can completely corrupt the entire um, homeostatic process while the initial utilization of an activator or inhibitor to control something like the, the inflammatory response is not going to have any feedback control okay so then what are you back to using uh, corticosteroids to inhibit the the um oxidative bursts. We'll see that. That's why those are used, right? So this Na eleven activates PK, PFKL, the liver form, and suppresses netosis. So in neutrophil cells, Na eleven selectively activates PFKL, inhibits the flux of the pentose, uh, pentose phosphate pathway, limiting NADPH. Okay, so that's the take home med- uh, message of the whole reason we did. Biomedical Portrait 5. Okay, so we can continue on here. There's a lot of other things that we opened up um, in the process of our discussions here. But I think I might stop here because this is lecture number 13, and I'm just about out of time anyway, I believe. Yeah, I'm good. I'm almost 27 minutes. (laughs) In lecture 13, I told you I like that number. For various reasons we don't need to go into and, um, doing that, the, going beyond that, spending much more time on where we were leading to, like, um, talking about these various oncogenic effects and these protein protein interactions are all very, very fascinating. And they require their own, not just biomedical portrait, but maybe a whole, uh, arc of lectures to discuss, um, You know, the oxidative burst or proteins interacting with lipids, all of that. Now, I did spend over a year doing my endomembranous lectures and we did talk about protein lipid and protein lipid interactions leading to the immune response in all of those lectures. And I published a paper on a review article. So I refer you to, I refer you to that. Um, I could put that in the show notes if you like. But the point is, I think I'm going to stop this biomedical portrait at number 13, at chapter number 13, because I think we finished the process. I think I explained to you um, this uh, unusual phenomenon where a glycolytic enzyme is basically being used um, to alter the oxidative burst, right? And so whether or not this is a frank alteration of use of that enzyme is very arguable quite arguable right so it's not really moonlighting because glycolysis is still being activated but the purpose of the enzyme to remove nadph and to remove the oxidative burst is a moonlighting affectation of the phenomenon of glucose utilization between the oxidative phosphate and the glycolytic pathway. Now, we haven't gotten into what would happen if we start thinking about fatty acid utilization, okay? So a whole other concept in terms of bioenergetics, which could alter glycolytic flux, but maintain the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway. But the problem there is catabolism of fatty acids and de novo synthesis of fatty acids would be essentially a contradictory event in the same cell right so all of the controlling mechanisms that lead to single carboxylase activation uh versus the acetylchloric carboxylase malonyl coa altering the flux of fatty acyl coa through the carnitine pathway for beta oxidation would have to be taken into consideration which leads us back to the same basic um, take home message, <clears throat> when pharmaceuticals are used to alter primary metabolism, any of the normal metabolic pathways, it's very likely that their use will be quite limited, quite selective, if at all, for frank chronic or indeed episodic high morbidity, high mortality diseases, okay? Because there's too much complexity, that will not be overcome by the utilization of that one compound. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, bye for now.